can remain standing if you would like, and if you need to sit, that's okay too. This is 41 verses this morning, so it's right on the cusp of my decision to say sit or stand, and I'm going to leave it, since it's right there, whatever you're able to do. It is a long passage. The Jerusalem Council, Acts 15, beginning in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, with the whole church, to choose men from among them, and sent and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men whom have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. 
For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Let's pray together. Lord, we do pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we would see wonderful things from your word. Lord, this is a work that only you can do, to lift these letters and words from these pages and impart them to our hearts. And so we pray that you would do this today through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Acts 15. Big chunk. We're going to have to work quickly to get through it. Two main disagreements that we see, two main problems. One is that of an issue of doctrine. It's an issue of the gospel. It's a problem. There are people called in other passages Judaizers who are come teaching that you had to follow the law of Moses and be circumcised as a Gentile to enter into God's family. The second is a conflict of relationships. Two individuals in the church, Barnabas and Paul, Maybe a surprising disagreement to some of us. How could these two godly leaders have such a sharp disagreement? And of course, they disagreed whether to take John Mark with them on their second missionary journey. Conflicts are not something that's unique to this passage of Scripture. We can look throughout church history. We can certainly look even throughout our own lives and see that conflict is nothing new. Satan loves to divide. We saw that last week. It's one of his main tactics and he will divide Christians. And so as we look at these issues, these two disagreements, it's important for us to understand what happened and how it was resolved and how we should work to resolve these things to maintain both the peace of the church and the purity of the church. When we talk about the peace and the purity of the church, we're talking about peace, that is the absence of discord, but something more than peace. It's really the way things ought to be. It's something that we should strive for, that the church should be the beautiful bride of Christ. And God is indeed making the church into that beautiful bride. But we're still sinners, and we still struggle, and we still have conflict and pride and envy and strife and all those things that roll around in our hearts, and it brings discord. So we have to work toward the peace of the church. And in the same way, we have to work toward the purity of the church, making sure that the church is true, true to God's word, true to who he says we are. And this takes effort in both regards. So let's begin looking at the first issue 
in verse 1. Paul and Barnabas are back in Antioch. They finished their first missionary journey. The church in Antioch has continued to grow, both in terms of its size as well as its influence. In verse 1, we see that these men came from Jerusalem, from Judea. They were teaching what the Judaizers taught, that they had to be circumcised. Without circumcision, the Gentiles were not saved. As we've looked through Acts, we've seen the power of this cultural and religious ideology that Judaism is. It made it very difficult for the Jewish background believers to see that Christ had indeed fulfilled the law. It was hard. This is something that we can't really understand because we didn't grow up in it. But if you've grown up in something and you've had to change later and you look back at how steeped you were in it, maybe you can begin to understand what this was like for these early believers. I mean, this was the way things had always been in their minds. Why should it change? But the problem is that they were adding to the finished work of Christ. This was not to be done. In essence, they were saying it is faith in Christ plus circumcision that saves, plus keeping the law. And this, of course, is wrong. We're saved by faith and by faith alone. And so verse 2 tells us that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with these men. They had seen the work of the gospel. In fact, they had seen it firsthand. They had had a front row seat watching God bring Gentiles into the fold. And not only had they seen men and women who were Gentiles come to saving faith, but God had given his spirit to them. He had poured out his spirit upon them. So nothing was to be added to the sufficiency of Christ alone, and they knew that this false teaching had to be stopped. So the church decides to send Paul and Barnabas along with some others to Jerusalem to bring this issue before the apostles and the elders. You could call this the first general assembly. Church leaders gathering together to discuss and to pray and to work through an issue and then issue a decision. That's what we see happen. And verse 5 tells us that the issue, actually there's a little more information given here, the issue stemmed from believers who were a part of the party of the Pharisees. Does that strike you as odd? It does me. I mean, why were believers still a part of the party of the Pharisees? Why had they not separated themselves? Why had they not disassociated themselves with such a party upon coming to Christ? Well, we don't know the reasons why, but it clearly hadn't happened because this is what Luke describes to us. For these Jewish background believers in Jerusalem, there had been really little to no non-Jewish influence. I mean, Jews were the majority in Jerusalem. And so those who came to faith continued to think and work in that paradigm of what Judaism taught. And so keeping the law, having outsiders be circumcised, it made sense to them. That's what you do. And because of this, it was easier for them to remain in their old ways and not change, including staying a Pharisee. For us today, I think it values the highlight, or, 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 or highlights the value, rather, of interacting with people, particularly believers from other cultures. You and I can learn a lot by talking to believers who are from other cultures. And this doesn't just mean leaving the country. I mean, those of you who've traveled internationally know that, that when you meet with believers, you know, the church looks different in different places around the world. And there's always something that you learn from those experiences. But we have people from all over the world right here. And it doesn't just mean like other nationalities. You know, some of you who grew up in certain parts of the U.S., 
uh, have a very different cultural experience from what I grew up in in the south of the U.S. And we could probably talk about that. And what comes of this is, one, is it, encourage, it can encourage you in your faith. You can see things that, that uh, God's done in your life and God's done in this other person's life and it encourages, there's mutual encouragement. But it can also challenge you. Maybe there's some blind spots. Maybe there's some things that you need to think differently about. I've seen this happen in my own life again and again. Well, the members of the Pharisee party state it. If there's any doubt what they're saying, Luke records it in verse 5. It's very clear. The Pharisee party members stated, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. This is a problem, right? They needed to hear from their brothers in Antioch. They needed to see what God had done to bring the Gentiles into the fold, and that what they were doing was wrong trying to add to the finished work of Christ. I mean, it's hard for us to understand this because of this dynamic that existed in the early church that eventually would change. But there are some parallels that can help us understand it better. But for the early church, this was clearly a problem, and we can see now how it was addressed. Verse 6 tells us the apostles and the elders gathered, together in Jerusalem, and after much debate, Peter arose. So the apostles and the elders are gathering together. So there's, there's a big group here. Most scholars think this was not a quick meeting. This was not a one-hour meeting. This was probably a multiple-day meeting that took place. And it tells us that after much debate, so they had a lot of debate about what the issue was and, and what should take place, that then Peter rose to speak. Now, if you remember, we, we left Peter, I think it was Acts 12, when he got out of jail miraculously went to Mary's house. Rhoda was there, got so excited, forgot to open the gate. Okay, that's after that incident, it says Peter went off. He went somewhere. It doesn't tell us where. And we don't see him again until now. So he has come back. And I think it's safe to assume that other apostles have returned as well. So others of the 12, as well as Paul, are back to make and render a decision on this issue. But Peter has a, uh, a unique position of influence. And so he stands up, and he explains the gospel to the assembly so clearly and so boldly that it leaves them in silence. He reminds them that it was they who sent him to the Gentiles, referencing his earlier work, referencing the experience that he had with Cornelius. Do you remember that? When he had the vision, he sees that he wasn't to make a distinction between Jew and Gentile. In verse 8, Peter states, God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. They had the Holy Spirit. They were saved. And he points to the heart. It's the heart where faith is born that then produces the fruit for good works. And so he goes after the heart of the matter. I mean, this is the opposite of what the Judaizers were saying. They were saying that it's the good works that then produce a change of heart or salvation. And this, of course, was wrong. Additionally, he adds, God poured out his spirit on them and then asks, why then are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? I mean, you get the weight of the question that he's asking. And of course, It's a rhetorical question. They know the answer. They know the answer that that what they had been doing was wrong. Why should conditions be added if God has already given them the Holy Spirit? Was the law that something even they could keep? They all knew it, everyone in the room. No, the law cannot save. Good works do not merit 
the favor of God. And so finally then, verse 11, the crowning statement, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. It's grace. It's grace. He drives this point home that no one is saved any other way but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And you may say, Seth, you say that every week or almost every week. And I do. And I will. (laughs) Because it's kind of a big deal. I'm going to get us to the gospel every week, whether we're in a narrative like Acts or whether we're in an epistle and we're looking at deep doctrinal issues or whether we're in the Old Testament or whether we're in Revelation looking at the future. We're always going to come back to the person and work of Jesus because I preach Jesus and Him crucified. That's what matters. And so this is exactly what Peter does. He brings them back to the gospel. And then it's the last thing we see from Peter. This is the last thing in Acts, the last time we see him. Well, like I said, the assemblies fall silent, and they should have. It was appropriate. Because not only had Peter spoken the truth, Peter's words had convicted them. He had broken their hearts that what they had been doing was wrong, putting a weight on their brothers that they should not have put. And then next, verse 12, comes Barnabas and Paul. And they too recount their journeys. We don't have the details of what they said, but other than that they recounted what they had seen God do among the Gentiles and that God had given the Holy Spirit to them. And then comes James. And James is essentially the moderator of this general assembly. He's the one who gets the last word. He's the one who is, in a sense, presiding over this meeting. Now, I've mentioned some terms related to our Presbyterian church polity, like general assembly and moderator. Let me explain why I've done that today. First, our ecclesiology, which is our doctrine of church or church government or how the church is ordered, um, has had an impact in our country that can give us some parallels to how we can understand this. For example, there were many Presbyterians who were part of the founding of our country, and our court system is modeled after the Presbyterian court system. So in our court system, we have local courts and state courts and federal courts, and there's a, a, a system of appeal up through the courts to ensure, hopefully, that justice is sought. And in the same way, our lowest court is this, our church, the session that rules over Christ the King makes up the lowest court. And then we're a part of a larger group, the Presbytery, Central Florida Presbytery for us, that is made up of all of the elders in the churches within our region. And then the highest court, which is the General Assembly. And that's all the delegated elders who uh, gather annually to meet together to accomplish a lot of what we see happening here in Acts 15. Glenn and I were just in Atlanta for the 46th annual General Assembly of the PCA. And each year at the PCA, a moderator is elected. This year it was a teaching elder, next year it will be a ruling elder, and it rotates each year. And this position is one of leadership. The moderator brings, uh, again, what we see James doing here, uh, brings leadership and order to the meeting. The moderator also often gets the last word, just the opportunity, the privilege that he has in that position. And it's also a, a sense of honor. And we've had many excellent moderators throughout our 46-year history. Well, today we see James, and he has the final word. And what he does with this final word is takes his hearers back to the word. He takes them back to a passage from Amos, but it's not quoted exactly from the Septuagint. It's actually 
kind of a paraphrase of this passage in Amos as well as Isaiah and some of the other prophets. Because what he was trying to accomplish with this paraphrase is that God has said this is what he was going to do all along. He has told us from, the, from old times that he was going to bring the Gentiles into the fold. Why are we making a big deal out of this? So he lets God's word have the final word. Well, one more thing about the PCA in terms of its relation to what we're doing. As an example, this year we had an issue that arose around uh, marriage. And we know that marriage is being redefined in our country, and so this was a concern for many in the denomination. And we already have the Westminster Confession of Faith as a part of our Constitution. The Westminster Confession of Faith already communicates what marriage is. But there was concern over the actual act of marrying, conducting weddings, and whether there should be some protection there. And so this task was handed off to a committee because at the General Assembly there were 1,500 delegates, so you can imagine what it would have been like to accomplish anything. So it's given to a committee to do this work, and the committee couldn't come to an agreement. So they brought it back to the floor. And there was, just as we see in Acts 15, some dissension, some debate, some discussion about what it was, and it was sent back to the committee. And this time, and we've, we've read and heard testimony after testimony, that the Lord really did a work as the committee reconvened. And there was a sense of cohesion and unity and agreement as they had never experienced. And they were able to come out with a uh, two or three sentence or two or three line sentence uh, that they were completely in agreement upon. Presented it to the floor, and I think there were 11 votes against it, but overall overwhelmingly approved. Now, that decision is then handed on to the denomination. It comes down to the lowest court. It's voted all the way back up, handed to the General Assembly next year, and it becomes part of our Constitution. Well, I may have lost most of you on all of that. Why do you care? Why are you even talking about this, Seth? Well, the reason is, is I want you to see that our polity is not just pulled out of thin air, but it's based partly on what we see here in the Jerusalem Council. We base it partly on what we see in terms of how we handle uh, dissension, disagreements, concerns, doctrinal issues to make sure that there is agreement. And as we see in Acts 15, after the consensus was reached at the Jerusalem Council, they then write a letter and they send it out to the churches in Syria and Antioch and Cilicia and into the regions to be read and to be adopted. We see this in verses 22 to 30. And then in verse 31 we read, And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of his encouragement. The decision and the leadership of the Jerusalem Council brought encouragement and joy, and I would dare say a sense of relief for these new Gentile believers to hear that they did not have to conform and keep the law of Moses, that they didn't have that heavy yoke, that unbearable yoke placed upon their necks, but that that salvation was by grace alone in Christ alone. Now, before moving on, I want us to consider what the letter actually said, and there were two basic thrusts that were in this letter, one of holiness and one of deference. The first, in holiness, the leaders exhorted them to abstain from sexual immorality. Now, they didn't need to state this. I mean, the the Scripture doesn't leave any room for misunderstanding of what sex is and what it's intended for, but they express this because in the Gentile and the Greek culture, sexual immorality was a huge issue. It was a good reminder for them to hear about, to remain separate, to not go back to those old ways of life. And so they call them to holiness. 
The other thrust of the letter is that of deference. The leaders encouraged them to to abstain, to, to not have anything to do with food that was connected with temple idol worship. And this related to their Jewish background brothers and sisters, the believers who had come to faith out of Judaism, that this issue of meat offered in temples was a huge issue. It was an issue that Jews saw this as pollution, and they wanted nothing to do with it. Even though Jesus had already said, and Paul would later say, that it wasn't food that was contaminated, it wasn't the food itself that was the problem, but it was the heart that was the problem, still some sensitivity was necessary to those coming out of Judaism. And there are things that relate to that in our own culture that we need to be sensitive of for other brothers and sisters. Something that we may have the freedom to do, but we abstain from that freedom in a context so as not to cause a brother or sister to stumble. Both ideas are worth our consideration today. The call to be holy, 1 Peter 1.16, be holy just as your God is holy, and the call to deference, Philippians 2.3, we're commanded, consider the needs of others more important than yourself. These are both commands that God has given us. And while we see these are things that God has told us to do, there's also the practical outworking of those things in the church in that it brings peace and it brings purity. Holiness brings the purity of the church. Showing deference brings the peace of the church. Do you see how those two things connect? So it's important for us to consider that as well. And then, you know, as we think about relationships, it brings us to the last issue, and that was this interpersonal relationship between Paul and Barnabas in verses 36 to 41. Um, this disagreement is, is, I think, hard for us to understand. How could two men of this caliber come to such a disagreement, a sharp disagreement, Luke calls. The word for sharp here is linked to the idea of a sickle, that it cuts, right? And we see it cut, it separated them. Well, we're all still sinners. And I think sometimes, especially when we look at Scripture and who authored Scripture, and Paul authored a lot of the New Testament, more than half of the New Testament, we look at these men and think, not them, but go back and read Romans 7. Uh, go back and see how Paul recounts that he was a man who continued to grow in faith. He wasn't perfect. Luke doesn't give us all the, the details. He just says that it was over the issue of whether they took John Mark with them or not. And two things that I want us to consider here. One, who was Barnabas? Well, Barnabas was the son of encouragement. This was who he was. He was compassionate. He saw, whatever re- for whatever reason, John Mark left. He saw him worthy of a second chance. You have to remember, too, John Mark was his cousin. So there was a relationship. And you have to remember, too, John Mark's mom, Mary, the one who owned the house, the big house where Rhoda was when she forgot to open the gate, that was John Mark's mom. This was Barnabas's aunt. So there's some really tight connection here for Barnabas. On the other hand, something that we don't talk about with Paul a lot, was that Paul could be hard to work with. Paul was a very driven man. Um, He could be dominating at times. And this isn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, You know, when you're in war and you need a hill charged, who do you want charging the hill? You want a U.S. Marine, right? (laughs) You know, (laughs) Um, but it doesn't mean you want to work for that U.S. Marine, (laughs) but you can be proud of him for what he does. So I think when it comes to Paul, there there are times we can see that there was uh, an opportunity for this rigidity to rub up against others. I'm careful as I say this because, again, Paul authored more than half of the New Testament. And I don't want any of you here today to hear that somehow that makes the Bible untrustworthy. 
God used men to write Scripture, and He breathed Scripture. It's God's Word, but He used sinful men to record the words that are in our pages today. But they're just as trustworthy because it was God who breathed the words. So we're not dependent on the perfection of Paul or of Mark, because guess what? John Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark. So God used him. And we see this redemption. In fact, this is not the end of the story, thankfully. As we look in Paul's epistles, in Colossians 4.11, he writes of John Mark that he was a comfort to him. And in 2 Timothy, he tells Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. He tells the church at Colossae, welcome John Mark and greet him. Peter calls John Mark his son. In fact, most likely, it was Peter who gave John Mark the details to write his gospel. And John Mark, of course, is the author of the Gospel of Mark. So it's not the end of the story. God redeems not only the situation, but the relationships. But I will say that if you have a disagreement with a brother or sister in Christ, we're urged to to be at peace with everyone so far as we're able to work to that end. To, there may be times to, to, to separate for a while, to move apart, to work in your different spheres. We see that. It can happen. But we need to work for peace in the church to bring honor to Christ. And this is where we need to end. Because whether we're considering the peace of the church or the purity of the church, the reality for all of us is that we all fall short. When we look at this, we can relate with both Barnabas being maybe a little, um, uh, you know, a little too compassionate. Maybe he was a little too soft. Or we look at Paul, maybe he was a little too hard. We're not sure. God doesn't tell us, you know, who the problem was here. But in the end, God does bring that redemption. But what we can understand is that we all fall short. That none of us is pure and none of us brings peace. In fact, what we bring to the equation is impurity and discord. In every situation, because we're selfish, because we're proud, because we want our own way, etc., etc. So we can't do this on our own. And this is why we look to Christ, who is both our peace and our purity. He has brought peace, and He is our peace. Ephesians 2.14, for He Himself is our peace. Romans 5.1, therefore we have been justified by faith, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the same way, we've been made pure through the washing of his blood. He's atoned for our sins. Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean. His blood has made us clean. And as we prepare to come to the table next week, these words from Matthew 26, 20, 28 For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Christ makes us pure. Christ gives us peace. And if you are one who does not know that peace and that purity, that freedom, that forgiveness of sins, I challenge you today to consider the claims of Christ, to come to Him in faith, and to know what it means to trust Him and to be free from the weight of sin. But Christian, I want you to hear this and know this, that you are at peace with God because of the finished work of Christ. There is nothing that can separate you from Him. You are pure, you are clean because of His atoning blood. Therefore, let us live in this peace and purity with each other. Let us do this so that the world can see the peace and the purity of Christ the King and glorify our Father in heaven.
Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful. We're so thankful that the peace and the purity of the church doesn't depend on us because we all fall short. We don't measure up. We can't do it, Lord. We're selfish. We want our own ways. We have our own thoughts. We have our own ideas. But thank you, Lord, that Jesus is our peace and our purity. Thank you, Christ, for making it, making the way something that we couldn't do for ourselves. And so continue that work of making your bride both peaceful and pure to be presented to the Father, holy and blameless one day. And we do look forward to that day. Equip us for every good work as we go. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand.